Good evening. Thanks so much for tuning in the Public Radio Hour, original programming made right here at Huntsville Public Radio. We're so excited to announce that we received two Alabama Broadcasters Association Abbey Awards this year. Both of them related to the Public Radio Hour. We earned an Abbey for Best in Broadcasting for Large Market Public Affairs for our episode Citizen Journalism, which happened last summer. And we also won an Abbey for Best Coverage of Civil Justice and Social Change Issues for our continuing coverage, The Hard Part, an interview series led by Katie Ganaway. Original community-focused programming like this is only made possible with support from listeners like you. So thanks to everyone who supported us this year or becoming a member during our spring fund drive. And remember, if you can't make a donation, you can still help by leaving a comment to support your favorite programs. Just go to WLRH.org and click the blue donate button. The Public Radio Hour is next, right after the news. Hello there. Thanks so much for tuning in the Public Radio Hour, original programming produced in the studios of 89.3 member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. Coming up in tonight's show, we'll hear how businesses and local makers are finding success thanks to North Alabama's amazing trails and lakes. Then we'll dive deeper and explore how Alabama's workforce is changing and evolving with the rise of automation and artificial intelligence. Later this hour, we'll also continue our local music stage check-ins at the Mars Music Hall and hear about the local lineup public concert series every Friday and Saturday night. And after all that wandering, we'll end up in the invisible city, drifting on the ancient sounds of the didgeridoo. But first, let's meet Tammy Reist, president and CEO of the Alabama Mountain Lakes Tourist Association. Their website, northalabama.org, is a well-organized, user-friendly database that fortunately was already in place when COVID hit this time last year. And because people wanted to stay active but stay outdoors, the website's trails section blew up, and some local businesses, more specifically some wineries, boomed. Tammy says the trails are an important connection to people living, working, retiring, and visiting across North Alabama. One in particular that we love to highlight is our wine trail. Our wine trail, we started it for North Alabama probably five years ago, and it was taking six individual wineries that we brought together to create a trail to where people could come in and experience the different wines across our region. But what we also created was a way of bringing more economic development, more sales and use into the region. We have seen our wineries, because of the trail that we created, double this year in the midst of COVID. Several buyers have doubled their revenue because it's something that allows them to come in and socially distance to see the the vineyards. And um, we've also created... uh, a mobile app for them so people can come in and not only have a paper copy and complete the trail and receive fabulous prizes, um, but also we have a component where we're able to ask the consumer where they're from so we can pinpoint those areas and then also add them to a database so when we do have big wine events, we're able to invite them to come back. So that is been a huge success. That, that's amazing about the wineries. Can you tell us a little bit more specifically about uh, which of the wineries have done well, uh, maybe some of the strategies they've employed? Yes. Jules J. Berta is one that's located in Albertville area. And one of the things they did was they added a pizzeria 
to their winery. So this has helped them, and with COVID, when we were able to do, um, let's say, alcohol to go, they were able to create some wine slushies with pizzas, and that really helped them. Um, They're expanding right now. They are adding. So one other thing we did was legislation to help them, and this is where regional tourism can come together. Uh, Senator um, Andrew Jones from up in the Fort Payne, Cherokee area, he also is a, a grower. He has a coffee. He makes, you know, coffees. And the wineries had talked to him about passing legislation where we could have special events where you could actually have a tasting. And if you had a tasting off-premise, then you could actually sell your wines, your products. And so we helped them by bringing in a caravan and bringing some of our legislatures in to tour the six wineries so they could see firsthand how they operate. Tammy, have you noticed a change in attitude among state lawmakers toward expanding uh, local communities' capacity to sell alcohol? It seems like a a lot of these trails are developing. You're talking about your wine trail. And our brew trail. Craft beer trails, all Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Are you seeing people have a more accepting attitude? And if so, why do you think that is? I think they are. I mean, number one, it is makers in Alabama. These are entrepreneurs that have started. It's not like your normal Budweiser, your Miller. These are people that are using our actual earth of Alabama that are growing what they need to make their product. And I think that they're seeing that this can be a game changer for added revenues. It's also something you can't buy on Amazon. It's something that you have to come experience. And that's what we do in North Alabama is create those experience, create those partnerships. You know, I'm a membership base, and you would think to, for me to put together brochures and to run ads and all these magazines and to go on TV and do everything we do, it would be very cost. I mean, we charge $150 a year. And when I met with my wineries the other day, because I like to bring them in, usually every six months, and we sit down and just talk. And I've invested probably 35000 in them. But when they have come in and doubled and they're building, that there is showing economic impact growth. And the great thing is we had a part in it. We were that promotional piece. The same thing with our waterfall trail that we created. You know, my daughter... As an occupational therapist, and I had sent her to um, Greenville, South Carolina, to do her internship at the Peace Center. And a friend of mine is a regional tourism organization director, and I said, you know, what is your number one piece? What is, what is the number one piece people take from you? And he said, oh, our waterfall trail. So I took it, I brought it back, and I looked at North Alabama. And we we started, have waterfalls. We have lots we, of them. We have them, and people <laughs> didn't even know it, and we create this trail. So let's play it forward to COVID. When we created this trail, and it became, we actually won the governor's uh, niche marketing piece. You know, when you think about North Alabama, 16 counties, and all that we have to wrap our hands o- across, mm-hmm. it's a lot. One social media person can't do it, so my social media person came to me. She said, I want to start an ambassador program for North Alabama. I said, okay. So when you go under northalabama.org and go under a plan that's uh, next to our trails, 
and you scroll down and see our ambassador program. We put this out here, and we just ask people, and you can see the criteria, if you're interested in being a part. We'll pay you with swag, we'll, you know, but we need you to fill this application out. Our first year, we've been doing this three years, we had over 100 people apply, and we narrowed it down to 22 people. So you can see the faces of our folks that are ambassadors. And what they do for us is each month we send them what's going on in North Alabama. If it's an event, we'll pay for the event. So they actually will go to the event, they'll show it, they show us wonderful videos, they help promote our waterfall trail, number one. That's a great idea. It is an amazing idea, and it has really, um, a lot of people go to Instagram, and so um, I have a report. I'm all about data, so I have this report that I buy each month, and it pulls and shows me how many posts that they make, what that generated, and so they're literally sharing their beauty with their market and a lot of them are photographers, and they travel all over. And so it's putting us on the map. So going back to COVID, one of our uh, ambassadors said, y'all need to quit marking the waterfall trails. People are coming in, and they're abusing it. So it's like we had new users that were getting outside that were not taking care of the environment in the way we as normal users would. And I said, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to find a way to solve the problem. So what we did, we partnered with Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace is a wonderful organization. You know, a lot of times we think of trash, but we don't think of what's in that trash that could go into our waterways that could then hurt the environment there. So, again, if we're going to bring the marketing together, we also need to bring the advocacy that goes around it. And so that's what um, we're doing here. Listeners, you can find more information about this uh, at NorthAlabama.org. Uh, Tammy, you were talking about the Ambassadors Program. Uh, that can be found if you navigate under the drop-down under Plan. And we were also talking about all the amazing things under the, the Trail section. You mentioned we mentioned Craft Beer. We mentioned the Wine Trail and Waterfalls Trail. There's something called a Hallelujah Trail uh, uh, and a Bass Trail and a Motorcycle Trail. <laughs> uh, it seems like there's so many great things to connect across North Alabama, which is uh, one reason that we're sort of covering the development of this Singing River Trail idea, and that's how you and I first came across each other, Tammy, was uh, after the webinar. Uh, it seems like you have overlapping missions with uh, NorthAlabama.org and Singing River Trail. How do you see these two ideas fitting together and, and making something bigger? I see it like a bat and a ball. They go hand in <laughs> hand. You know, you've got what I call the land development part um, for outdoor activity, and when you look at the nine county one trail endless opportunities, you know all of those fall within our region. So, you know, I was initially on the launch 2035 board, and the Singing River Trail became a component underneath it, and it has just taken the legs and has m- made movement. And we believe in it so much that, you know, I told John when they hired him, and I, and to me, they could not have found a better director with John. I've worked with John. I was one of the commissioners for the Alabama Bicentennial, and he worked very closely with us on that. And uh, through his history uh, at UAH, I mean, he's just a remarkable person. Um, so I told him how we would help them would be through grants. So I have a grant writer that we will pay to help him um, as he tries to leverage funding to to this trail. 
So um, we're very excited about the Singing River Trail, which is our our land trail, um, as well as there's another uh, exciting trail that has been developed, and it's called the Tennessee Riverline Trail. Mm-hmm. And several of my partners, such as um, Huntsville and uh, Ditto Landing, uh, Wheeler Lake, um, uh, over in the Pickwick area, Bridgeport, uh, Lake Gunnersville, uh, they've all been chosen to be a part of the Tennessee Riverline. So it's kind of like your waterline trail and then having the Singing River where, you know, it's like you can get off the land and do things. So it's just this best of both worlds. So, um, And then our organization happens to run a National Geographic website called Explore the Tennessee River Valley Region. And uh, this is all of your TVA area. Um, and we, uh, it's a beautiful site. So not only are we covering our North Alabama, which is pretty much my TVA region, and now we also cover a National Geographic, which is all of our TVA region, showing the great things that can be done. So uh, if you notice on our website, we've also created a retirement and relocation page. We are getting a lot of calls from people in New York, California, Ohio that are hearing about us. Uh, We used to work around 32 trade shows a year showcasing the majestic beauty of the Appalachia. A lot of people don't realize that uh, a lot of my area falls in the Appalachia region, which is a great, a great thing. Um, In fact, there was a great study that was just released through the Appalachia Regional Commission, which was called Trends and Strategies for Tourism in Appalachia. And I'm very excited that I was asked to work along with University of Tennessee and Dr. Timmy Zell on that project, and they listed a lot of our trails as case studies. So very excited to be not only working for North Alabama, but working with people in neighboring states in the Appalachia region to be able to just showcase and to help them create these trails within their communities. Because a lot of times, People want to be territorial, and they say, I just want it in my county. And I've learned that if we can grow, people don't know county lines. They know places. And if they can discover the beauty of North Alabama and all it has to offer, then it becomes not only a playing ground for us, but a playing ground for visitors, and hopefully we get people that will relocate here. And so that's been our next thing, is working on the retirement relocations. And again, we are being seen like there's been no other. And a lot has to do with a lot of our industry that's coming in, but a lot has to do with just the beauty that we have, the fact you can fish year-round. You could golf year-round here. You know, when we go to Columbus, Ohio, and work a show, and these retirees are sick of the snow, they know that we're offering them a, you know, a win-win. I mean, come to North Alabama, you know, enjoy the mountains, and just be five hours from a beach. So, hey, what, what more could you ask for? <laughs> That was Tammy Reist, President and CEO of the Alabama Mountain Lakes Tourist Association. Their website, NorthAlabama.org, keeps you in touch with all sorts of great things happening across North Alabama. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 in Huntsville. Thanks so much for tuning in. The COVID-19 pandemic has sped up the necessities for workers to be highly skilled in automation and artificial intelligence as soon as possible. And that means big things for Alabama's workforce. 
Producer Katie Ganaway and Dr. Robin McGill, Director of Instruction and Special Projects for the Alabama Commission on Higher Education, sat down to talk about what these rapidly developing trends mean for Alabamians and what sort of new proposed legislation would ease the transition to a more automated workforce. The commission says the reliance on artificial intelligence and automation in the Alabama workplace continues to increase. The Southern Education Foundation says by the year 2025, 30 percent of work activities in the state could be automated. Should we be worried about this statistic? What the statistic really means is that our workforce is changing for the 21st century and that it's not really going to be the same situation as we saw in the 20th century where folks could go and get a high school diploma and go straight into the workforce for 40 years uh, or even get a college degree and then stay with the same company. Uh, What this really means is that automation is going to disrupt things or is already disrupting uh, the workplace and that folks are going to need to go back in and get more training and upskilling to continue their career. So would you say that Alabama's institutions of higher education are well-equipped to prepare students and job seekers as this transition takes place, or is there more that needs to be done? I think they are very aware that this transition is taking place, and they've already started to develop some exciting new programs, micro-credentialing, and um, other certificate-style programs that are for credit that can be modularized and applied to degrees and that folks are going to be going in and out of those systems and perhaps starting in a, you know, workforce training or apprenticeship space and then going into the workforce and going back into higher ed for a bachelor's degree uh, and then back in for a graduate degree. And there are some really exciting things going on in our state right now. I'll mention a couple of quick examples So up in um, your listening area in Region 1, the University of North Alabama has got some really exciting micro-credential programs that are aligned with workforce demand around professional selling and instructional technology and design, and they're really spooling up a number of these. Down in the Birmingham area, the University of Alabama in Birmingham has got an interdisciplinary graduate program that allows individuals to combine two graduate-level certificates into an interdisciplinary master's degree. And these are the kinds of innovations that we've seen in the private sector marketplace in higher education that now the public sector institutions are embracing. And I'm excited to see that Alabama is already at the leading edge of that. And you mentioned micro-credentialing, is that correct? Yeah. Can you go into a little bit of a brief detail on what that is? Right. So I'll be honest and say that the definition is evolving for micro-credentials, but what we're talking about is a credential that is for credit, so it can apply to an academic degree, um, but it is smaller than a degree. So it's a unit of about nine credit hours, that's three courses or more, and is having... um, some engagement already with employers and industries where those industries and employers are telling our institutions we really need folks trained in these skills and these competencies. And the micro-credential is uh, being developed directly in relation to those employer demands. 
Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, college students have had to transition to remote coursework and get their lessons online. So is there any indication on how this at-home transition would help or hinder them once they start their careers? You know, a lot of the jobs that have survived in the pandemic or even thrived or grown have been those that allow employees to work remotely or uh, in flexible situations and folks are connecting into work through some kind of technology rather than face-to-face engagement or hands-on engagement the way you would have if you're working with machines. And um, it does seem like the skills, the kind of soft skills, the teamwork the ability to interact with those new technologies would certainly be helped by this experience of rapidly moving toward that in our um, instructional space. You know, I can see that that would be to the good. I'm really, I'll be interested to see what the literature says once we finally have time uh, to see how things evolve after the dust settles. On a report from the ACHE, uh, 2019 data shows that the college-going rate declined to 58%, which is the lowest percentage of high school grads entering higher education over the past five years. With automation reaching many different industries like production and transportation, what happens when students do not enter an institution of higher education after high school, and how do we prevent students from being left behind? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I do want to give a little bit of context here. Sure. Um, that college-going rate is something AIC produces every year in conjunction with our partners at the Alabama State Department of Education. It is one of many indicators that we look at for high school students as a state. So one of the other uh, indicators is their employment and after high school employment So some individuals and high school graduates are going through career and technical programs or they may have decided that they wanted to uh, enroll in an apprenticeship program, which, as we know, is really um, rigorous hands-on training combined with instruction, and um, they would not show up in those figures for college going, which only measure high school graduates who go directly into a two- or four-year post-secondary institution. And, of course, we want to see that rate going up. We're definitely um, needing to climb that rate, you know, well into the 60s in order to meet demands. Um, But I do want to, you know, see what the other data looks like as well. And what would that take to increase that percentage? Well, right now um, we're doing a big FAFSA push So for your listeners, those of you who either are in college or maybe have college-going students to come, the free application for federal student aid, FAFSA, is the financial aid application. It's free, as it says in the name. They've just simplified it to make it easier. And that is really highly correlated with college-going. If you complete the FAFSA, then you can become aware of all the resources that are available to support college going. So that's getting our FAFSA completion rates up. That's crucial. Um, Having greater connections during that, sometimes we in higher ed call summer melt period between when high school graduates finish their studies and then there's a summer before they start at their new college. And 
um, having more transition or bridge programs, guidance, or individual advising during that period, that's certainly going to help the college going rate. And then, you know, we at AIC, Commission on Higher Education, are involved in a number of ongoing working groups and initiatives around STEM preparation, especially in mathematics and getting our students, you know, better able to um, perform at a college level right out of the gates with their gateway math. And that's going to help retention and help people feel like college is a path for them and kind of getting students to believe that that's really an option and being able to imagine what their life might look like going to college and succeeding in college. Another way that the commission is trying to help is with the House Bill 498, and that is a project of yours and the governor's office. Is that correct? Uh, I will say that it's mostly the governor's office, Okay, and they are working with a number of partners, including the Alabama Commission on Higher Education, um, the Alabama Community College System, the Alabama Office of Apprenticeship, and Uh, the Department of Commerce. People have this idea that bureaucracies can be very siloed, and it's an exciting time in Alabama that those silos are really being braided and woven in ways that um, make it easier for individuals to to get services and um, be successful. And the bill would establish a free database with info on credentials and competencies as they relate to education and workforce programs. So let's talk through what all this bill would bring to the state. This bill, HB 498, it's um, sponsored by Representatives Collins and Baker, who are two great champions of education policy in our state. AIC is an important partner in the bill, and it builds on work from 2019 that established the Alabama Committee on Credentialing and Career Pathways. This committee was established at the same time as the Alabama Office of Apprenticeship, and we're now seeing the fruits of those things. And what we, uh, I guess the governor's office, realized is that there needs to be a standing committee of this ACCCP, that Committee on Credentialing and Career Pathways. The standing committee would focus on quality and transparency for credentials, meaning that it's sort of that policymaking or entity that brings stakeholders together to determine what are those quality points. There are rubrics for what an in-demand occupation is, and there are lists out there that have been published. And so this new committee would really be able to determine what needs to be tweaked about those rubrics. If there are credentials of value that should be included that weren't captured, or maybe credential providers who aren't serving Uh, as well as we thought, and then those people could be cycled off the credential evaluate. Let's talk a little bit more about the credential registry. So what would that do for Alabamians that they cannot access now through other resources? You know, I would say that probably many of the listeners on this call are very good at searching for educational opportunities, going directly to an education provider, whether that be an institution of higher education, one of our publics or private institutions, or even maybe uh, an online provider. But for those who are working adults and who may not be that traditional college-going student, uh, they are less sensitive to who the provider is and more sensitive to what are the competencies, skills, and career opportunities that come out of seeking further education. 
is back to that kind of micro-credential or modularized credential that we talked about before. And um, it's hard to search for those things because our systems aren't organized that way. So this credential registry interfaces with a national database, which is called credentialfinder.org. It's managed by a, an organization called Credential Engine, which is a nonprofit. And their mission is around transparency and quality of credentials. So transparency meaning you, you know what you're getting. And that's where that search function really will come in handy. So if we can do this right, and we're in the process of doing it right now, be able to get standardized information about different kinds of credentials, you know, how long it takes, how much it costs, where it's offered, and what are the competencies and skills and occupations that are associated with that credential. And that'll help Alabamians, specifically those who are looking to upskill, figure out which of these credentials might be best suited to their goals. And how would you say the legislature is receiving this bill? Does it look likely that it's going to pass? It does, largely because, I, I, as I mentioned before, Alabama is this really unique coalition that is made up of state agencies and, um, you know, volunteer boards, our Alabama workforce councils, and also our community partners uh, that are all behind this idea of getting uh, better data and better information into the hands of our citizens so that they can make informed decisions in this bill with that. That was Dr. Robin McGill, Director of Instruction and Special Projects for the Alabama Commission on Higher Education. She was talking with WLRH producer and Arts Underground host Katie Ganaway. And you're listening to the Public Radio Hour, an original production of member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. This is our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In the second half of the show, we'll have a couple of musical treats in store for you, including a lesson on the didgeridoo and a check-in on the local lineup local music series at Mars Music Hall. We'll be right back. It's spring, so it's time to plant. And we've got you covered when you participate in our spring pledge drive. $50 Bennett's gift cards are available now with a pledge of $150 or more. And $100 Bennett gift cards are available with a pledge of $300 or more. Supplies are limited. So make your pledge today at WLRH.org. We appreciate your support. Some ideas come to us so quickly. They're brilliant. They're exciting. Are they good ideas? Not always. This Monday on the Sundial Writer's Corner, Scott Hancock tells what happened when he had what seemed like a good idea at the time. The U.S. Army was not so sure. That's Monday morning at 9 on the Sundial Writer's Corner, right here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. This is the Public Radio Hour, an original program of WLRH 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Thanks for joining us. As always, we're keeping our eyes and ears on the Tennessee Valley's performing arts scene to see how artists are faring in these lingering COVID times. Mars Music Hall at the Von Brown Center has been finding ways to keep their stage open and filled with an open-to-the-public local music concert series titled The Local Lineup. It happens every Friday and Saturday evening. The VBC is also opening a temporary outdoor stage called Third Rock 
to create a festival-quality concert experience for those who'd still rather listen to and perform music in a distanced outdoor setting. To tell us all about it, we spoke with the assistant director of the VBC, Mike Vodacek. And Mike, you found a way to stay open over the past year during the pandemic. Describe to us what hosting a live music event was like last spring compared to now. Are people more willing to come out? Are musicians more willing to play? To play? How has the concert experience changed for us? Well, uh, as we all know, on March 13th of uh, last year, we everything came to a screeching halt, and we didn't do any, any events or live entertainment events for about two months. Um, we started doing some... Um, graduations, dance recitals, and things like that in June and July. And in July, we decided we had Mars Music Hall sitting there uh, pretty much empty every day. And uh, we had had some inquiries from some from some local artists who wanted to play in there. And so we decided to come up with the Mars Music Hall local lineup series. Right, right. And we reached out to local artists. Um, and on Fridays and Saturday nights, we uh, allowed them to come and play. We were we were paying them, uh, which was good because they were really doing no other uh, no other gigs. Even in some of the bars and, and restaurants, they were they were they were kind of hurting for money. So we thought we'd give them a little bit of help by doing that. So we started that uh, in July, and we've continued it. Um, we've got it booked through May currently. And how was that when it first? launched I, I imagine people were maybe hesitant to come out at first or people weren't quite ready to venture forth what was the situation you know i think there was kind of a pent-up demand between between march and in july that uh, that people really did want to come out i think they didn't really quite know what we were what we were doing because typically mars music hall has a 1500 uh, capacity but that's a standing room right. only capacity and what we did was we put tables of four um, downstairs and upstairs, and limited the capacity to 200 people. So they were all socially distanced. We required masks. So I think once people started coming um, to the local shows, saw and seeing how safe and, it was, yeah. yes, and saw that the, the atmosphere and how safe and fun it was, it really started picking up. So over the over the months, it's continued to grow, and, and we've been happy to be able to do that. And you've had some fantastic bands uh, for the local lineup series. You know, it's been great because we, these are a lot of these bands. We've done probably seventy different bands over this time period, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. I mean, bands I've never heard of before. You know, there there are some of the regulars that I know that play at some of the bars, but there have been some that have come in and you just blow you away. It's like, wow, I had no idea the right. level of talent. And we, when we know, and you know, you've, you've been involved with the music scene for a long time, but. It's just it's nice to see that level of talent on that local level, and we've been happy to be able to pay them to do it too. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having a stage. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Well, a stage with no artists on it doesn't do us any good. No, and like you mentioned, you've been faced with reduced capacity and still found a way to pay the bands and and hopefully put on a good experience for the for the audience too. Tell us a little bit about how the math has been working out for you. Is this something you can keep doing? Have you found a way to uh, kind of balance things against, uh, like you said, uh, 1,500 seat capacity versus what you're allowed to do now? Well, with the local bands, you know, the costs are are fairly low. Um, We try to use full-time employees to work the shows, both in the bars and on the production side. So we've kept our costs low. Um, The only money we're making uh, on the show would be – 
food and beverage sales. So I would say some 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 nights we're losing money, other nights we're making a little bit of money. So we're we're not we're not knocking it out of the ballpark, but we're we're, we're doing something more for the community um, and and trying to pretty much to break even. We'll probably continue to do these until the um, until the national artists start coming back out again, um, which I don't think will be until we can get back to a closer to a full uh, capacity room. We do have um, we do have a couple shows that are looking to go in there that would be more regional or national acts um, with a with a small capacity um, just because they want to get out and work. So we are working with those. So we'll continue to do this as long as we can uh, and, and until we start getting those national acts back out. I know the Flaming Lips put on a concert where everyone got their own personal little bubble to to, to stand in. Might we see that at Mars? Well, you know, I saw that as a matter of fact, and, and, I, and I do have I do have the date held or some dates held for the Flaming Lips in the fall. So I whoa, would love to see that. Whoa, so, breaking news! Yeah, I would love. Not nothing's nothing's happening yet, but but it's it's a possibility. Now I'm hoping that uh, uh, I'm hoping that we don't. Everyone's not in a bubble, but if we have to do that, we'll certainly do that. And the the venues that uh, seem to have weathered the storm so far uh, during the pandemic have an outdoor performance space. And that's kind of the new news with uh, Mars and the VBC uh, is the new outdoor stage, temporary outdoor stage, I guess, uh, that's being planned in the north parking lot uh, outside of North Hall called Third Rock. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Yes, we have um, been approached by a couple of promoters and artists. Um, They had some artists who just only wanted to play outside. They didn't feel comfortable playing inside. So they would prefer to play outside. And you've seen some of these parking lot shows where people actually pull their cars up almost like a, like a drive-in movie theater. Um, we looked at some of those. Those really didn't seem to work out. Um, we didn't have really a parking lot large enough to do that. But we decided to come up with um, the Third Rock stage and put a stage out on the lot adjacent to the North Hall on Clinton Avenue. So let's have some specs. What's the, the sound situation? I mean, it, this is a big stage, a little stage? What, it's what? a big stage. It'll be 64 by 32. It'll be like a festival-sized stage. We're working okay. with a, a major staging um, and production companies out of Nashville to, to put the stage there and leave it there basically throughout the summer. Um, and then as we do shows, we'll have and we'll have video boards up there as well. So it'll be a nice. major festival-type stage, not just a, not a small stage. It would be something you would see at a festival. Um, so what we'll do is go out and we're going to put pods, pod seating um, of twos and fours. And what we'll do is have uh, chairs of twos separated seven feet in every direction, in one row, let's say. And then the next row, maybe all seats of fours separated again. So we can get about 2,300 people out on that site. We'll have portlets out there for those facilities, and we'll also do uh, our food and beverage out there. So we will have um, food, alcohol sales on that site, um, and it'll be a fun time. So right currently we have uh, two bands booked there. The first one, I think we're going on Coming sale up April 17th, April 17th. Right, that's correct. Mm-hmm. April 17th we have um, Blackberry Smoke and North Mississippi All-Stars. Uh, and then the second show we have booked uh, on May 14th is 38 Special and Molly Hatchet. 
and we are we do have a couple others that have confirmed um, that will be announced within the next week or so. So people can expect a real festival concert experience coming up on the on the 17th. That's true. Absolutely. It'll be fun. I mean, I think people it's a safer environment. Um, people, are, I think, are excited about doing outdoor shows. You know, we, we used to do Big Spring Jam back in the day, and I always have questions about bringing that back. And you know, this will be a, a mini, mini version of that, just be having an outdoor show there. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. Well, Mike, thanks for talking with us here on the Public Radio Hour about uh, live music here in Huntsville. How, how would you describe the current health of Huntsville's live music scene? You've seen it over the past year. It seems to be making it. It's, it's really coming up. I mean, in addition to those shows we just talked about, we have um, a couple of arena shows, well, several arena shows coming up. We have Jamie Johnson and Randy Hauser on April 15th. We have Mike Epps on April 23rd in the arena. And we have Travis Tritt April 24th in the arena. And also Joe Bonamassa, April 3rd in the concert hall. So It feels like April is the month when people are getting back out there. I, I, just, I have a feeling that people are, getting, are, are just dying to see live music again, and they're, they're anxious. And these, the ticket sales have been very, well, very good for all these shows, and uh, I think we'll just continue to keep getting better. So we're happy about it. Thanks to the Von Brown Center's Assistant Director, Mike Vodacek, for joining us here on the Public Radio Hour. We'll keep you in touch with all things local music right here on Huntsville Public Radio. We'll end our show tonight with a little bit of fun and a word that is certainly hard to say. And as Invisible City host Brad Posey discovered, there are also great ancient connections to the didgeridoo. In a recent episode of The Invisible City, Brad explored this mystic instrument with special guest Bradley Edwards. Here's part of their conversation. So Bradley is here, and he's been on the show before. We, we've done um, a lot of stuff with reggae and, and stuff like that. Yes. And uh, tonight, he's, he's got a, a great mix for us that, that we're going to listen to featuring the, the, the digital. <laughs> Uh, the Digidaroo, uh, which I didn't have any trouble saying You're until. Close. Uh huh. Digidaroo. 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 Okay, see, I didn't have any trouble with it before we started. Your version was better. I, I mean, I, I threw in two more consonants and a vowel in there. You know, had some tongue rolling. It <laughs> yeah. was awesome. Yeah, I covered all the cultures at, at once. Uh, but Ed, Edwards uh, Bradley's gonna gonna chill out with us, and, and he's gonna play some stuff for us and talk a little bit about it. Like, uh, is there basically just one kind of Sound you can get out of this thing, or or what? Tons of tones, actually. It, it, and I am, even though I've kind of been sort of playing didgeridoo for uh, actually a lot of years now, I still consider myself such like a basic amateur player, um, especially to, to some of these jams you're about right. to hear today, man. Right. It's incredible. And some of these folks are are you know full Northern Territory Aboriginal guys. Other ones are are. Players from all over the world that have picked up the instrument and just jam it. Yeah. Um, but it, but no, man. To answer your question, it, it does have a basic drone tone. Yeah. And, and that's that really is dependent upon the length and the diameter of the, the particular instrument, the didgeridoo yeah. that, that you're playing. By the way, like the Aboriginal traditional word is like yadaki. Yadaki. Uh, and and, cool. and so the, the, it was kind of more of the white man it, it, a name is the didgeridoo, and they ah. called it that because the sound, that's gotcha. what it sounded like. It was like gotcha. didgeridoo, didgeridoo, didgeridoo. Yeah. 
it does. So that's almost like a basic pattern or tone of it, man. Right. But, but so if you if you actually played one, you might not even call it that, right? Yeah, true. Gotcha. Like, okay. Right. The traditional name would be Yadaki. And, I, and I, I think, man, the Aboriginal culture is amazing. Like it has so many different dialects and, and tribes. So there might be several names for, for the instrument that I'm not even aware right. of. But but I've heard Yadaki and of course Didgeridoo is like the the most common world known right. name, but it's you get so many tones with this dude, man. It's uh, it's a lot about actually humming into the instrument. Yeah. So you're adding different almost overtones. Right. The way you do your tongue and the way you breathe, the breathing. We were talking about this a little bit ago. It's yeah. called circular breathing, um, and that creates like rhythms and and beats, right. pulses with it. Uh, it it's it, to be a simple, just hollow. Wooden tube is yeah. it, it, it's amazing. All the different things can go on inside it. Well, it's, it's funny because I've always <laughs> I've always liked the sound. Yeah, and 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 this this uh, this goes back to like when I was in my probably you know late teens, early twenties. Uh, we you know, uh, it takes me back to like Fedville, Tennessee. Oh, my wow. friend Natalie Luter. Her, her her apartment and and where, where we would put it on and I would just sit in front of the speakers yeah you know and you're just sitting there and it's going whatever oh, yeah. and you're like yes. and you're, like you kind of commune with God a little <laughs> yeah. bit you know and, oh it, the vibration is, is it hits you, know, you to the core brother you know it's like you know lack of sleep <laughs> uh, that's great man. <laughs> Dude, well, you you hit on such a neat thing. Like I like it because I, I, before I came on with you today, I was sitting there thinking, like, man, where? Because I was just like you, I love the sound of this. Right, like, right. It's, it's it's wonderful. It's it's incredible. It's it hits this primordial, ancient, just like, and it really is one of the oldest instruments in the world, man. Next to probably some African percussion and other things, but right. it's it's incredible. And, and what I can basically get it back to in my mind. Is basically sitting in the movie theater, South Huntsville. I think it was called the Cobb Cinema 8 Theater. Yeah. With my mom and dad, maybe my sister, watching Crocodile Dundee. The right. Fir- the first one. Right, right, and, right, right, right. And th- this sound was in the background, man. And I was just like, what is <laughs> that? Like, what man? is that? I mean, yeah. it, it instantly hit to the core, man. And, yeah. And then, uh, and so I, I digged it then. And then, I, you know, I think some time went by. I didn't even really give it thought. And then... I actually, my family in the government got got government jobs. We moved out to the Marshall Islands, which are these tiny little islands between Hawaii and Australia. So yeah. I wasn't too far from Australia, really. Although I never have made it physically. Yeah, I gotta make it, brother. Yeah, I've been there in my spirit mind, but, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but never physically touched I've it. I've been yet. there in my spirit <laughs> mind. There, it, but when we were in the Marshalls, man, this dude and his wife had gone to Australia. And he brought back a didgeridoo, man. Yeah. And I somehow found out he had it. And he said, dude, I've tried to play it. It's just sitting in the corner <laughs> collecting dust. Would, yeah. You know, you can borrow it as long as you want. Dude, I, I kid you not, I think I kept his didgeridoo for like almost three years. And finally, I found out that they were leaving the island. So I was like, here you go, brother. And right. he had forgotten about it. Yeah. And, 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 and like he's like, man, actually, I would love to give this to you. And, but his wife had, like, a special connection with it. I understood. I was like, no, that's y'all's didgeridoo, man. Yeah. Um, I'll get one later, trust me. And so, but that was my introduction to actually having a didgeridoo in my possession. And just, it took months and months to, to get the breathing, the circular breathing, it's called down, where you're yeah. literally pushing air out with your cheeks. 
and breathing up through your nose at the same time. So that way the sound never stops. Right, you have to. Yeah. It's a continual flow. Jazz players, I'm sure, I think Miles Davis, all the, you know, a lot of these, these yeah. horn players have perfected it as well, man. But that's the breathing technique. It's insane, man. Cool. So you're, you're, you're going to play us some examples. I here. brought one. I br- this one is, is really trippy, man. It's called a spiral dig. So, yeah. the, so the traditional didgeridoo is is usually anywhere from like a four and a half to a six foot long, hollowed out wooden tube. Right, they, they can be made out of PVC, bamboo. They can be made out of right. anything that's hollow. And traditionally, man, like termites would eat the center of of like eucalyptus wood was the most common Aboriginal Australian. Oh, interesting. Okay, and and, and they would break these branch hollowed branches off. Clean them up a little bit and boom, instant jam in the bush, baby. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm, what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn your volume down just a little bit I, and then I let don't you, blame you and, and let I you might blow some speakers and let you just kind of go to town here. So I'm going to play. I'm going to play a basic drone sound just to give you and the folks like just this is the basic ditch sound. Then I'm going to start doing some breathing techniques and adding okay. some funky stuff. Okay. Cool. So here's the basic sound of of this particular ditch. Basic. That's just literally blowing into the thing. Right. Now I'm, now we're going to get a little funky. Uh-oh. It's fantastic, dude. And it's a killer high. And so I, you know, I, I just realized that we're probably having the most NPR moment in the like literally there's two there's two guys with beards talking about the digidoo. Name Brad. God bless. I can't digidoo. Didgeridoo. You nailed it, brother. Man. If I had a cookie, I'd give it to you. A thousand times I've said that word. Not today. Not today. No, that's really cool, dude. Like, so, so you can you can do like all kinds of like percussive yeah. like things. I guess with your tongue it's and then tongue, the, the breathing. Exactly, and it's tongue, it's movement. The the the, the bark sound and the, and the Aboriginals would imitate all the sounds they would hear in the bush. So that barking is kind of almost like the resembling of a dingo, right? A wild right. dog, yeah, in the bush. yeah, yeah. And, and so you're literally barking into the digits you're playing. So you're getting that woof woof, you yeah. know, sound. It would um, sound it sound great like with a hip hop beat oh, or you know just yes. you know or whatever. That, that's it, cool. It, in fact, I threw a couple of the things I throw on here for the, the mix, the jams today. Um, you'll see how Dig is being used in that way, man. It's right. it's got killer beats. I mean, it, it, it's there's no end to it, man. It can be thrown on techno, hip hop. <laughs> I mean, I've even done some reggae jams with the Dig in the background. Oh yeah. So I mean, it's it's everything, brother. Well, you, you, look, the next time we you know we jam, which Someday we got we got to make sure we do that. Yeah. Uh, please bring it, dude. It's on. So uh, Bradley is mm. teaching us a little bit about the didgeridoo. Bingo. 
Uh, and uh, he's told us a little bit about the history. He's played it for us. You know, now uh, we're, we're going to jump into a big mix here that he's put yes. together. And to tell us a little bit about who's on that. Dude, and- I had to start out with, with and I'm also, it's also going to end. It, it's full circle. But with this group who's probably the most popular mainstream full Aboriginal band to come out of Australia. And they're called Yathu Yindi, which I believe means like uh, mother, child. Uh, is 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 the is the words there, and they're amazing, brother. They're they're mainly kind of a rock uh, genre type band, but they mix all the old uh, traditional Aboriginal music, uh, the didgeridoo, the click sticks, yeah, um, and, and and the the singing, and and these are called uh, corroborees. Uh, and I, and I had to start with some traditional corroborees. What you're about to hear is basically. Uh, a group of of men and and just when you hear this you, you just close your eyes and picture these these guys around the fire at night right, and right. and they are they are doing these corroborees you've got you got the didgeridoo going you've got the click sticks and they and they often stomp they would stomp the earth and and act out in these ways of of basically uh impersonating dream time as they call it. that's the right, spirit right yeah, I've read that what, what they, call, they call it a walkabout. Yeah, right? that's, yes, man. Yeah. The walkabout when when a, when a boy would reach to a certain age, coming right. into manhood, um, they they take these journeys through the bush, and it's it's intense, man. The things they go through, survival, um, calling right. on the, the the spirits of, of the ancient ones and their their cultures, and it's awesome. Let's do it, man. Let's let's let, let's blast off. Let's see we see where we go. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. That was Huntsville musician Bradley Edwards schooling host of the Invisible City, Brad Posey, on the didgeridoo. There's always something wild and wonderful happening on the Invisible City. Check it out every Friday night at 7 and Saturday night at 10 right here on 89.3 HD1. Find playlists and podcasts for all of our original programming, including the Public Radio Hour, at WLRH.org. Then look under Programs for your favorite show. A big thanks to Alabama Mountain Lakes Tourist Association President and CEO Tammy Reist, Assistant Director of the Von Braun Center Mike Vodacek, Alabama Commission on Higher Education Director of Instruction and Special Projects Dr. Robin McGill, and musician Bradley Edwards along with WLRH producers Katie Ganaway and Brad Posey. We all teamed up to make a show tonight. We hope that you enjoyed it. Tune in the Public Radio Hour every Thursday night at 7 on 89.3 HD1. Thanks to support from listeners like you. Thanks. <laughs>